You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. If I haven't met you, my name's Jonathan. I'm the pastor here. And if you're joining us for the first time today, uh, you're joining us in the middle of a, a little series we've been running looking at the atonement. Atonement is just a big theological word which literally means at one and it describes what Jesus achieved in dying on the cross. In dying on the cross, Jesus did everything that needed to be done to bring us back into at one with God. That in dying on the cross, Jesus takes people like you and me, people who are estranged from God, estranged from God people who are separated from God because of our guilt, because of our shame, because of our fear, and he overcomes all of that, making atonement, making atonement for us. And the way that we've done this is by looking at the cross from different angles. We've taken the three major worldviews that you find from around the globe, and we have put ourselves in the position of those people, the way that they think, the way that they conceive of themselves and of sin wrongdoing, their place in the world, their moral obligations. We've taken those positions and, and, and then looked at the cross and seen how Jesus' work of atonement deals with all of our inescapable problems. So, in the first week, we looked at shame-honor culture. The, these cultures sort of exist from the Middle East through to the Far East, and people in those cultures conceive of their place in the world in terms of shame and honour. I exist to bring honour to not just myself, but my family, my community, and at all costs I must avoid bringing shame to my family, to my community. The biggest problem for people from those cultures is the problem of shame. And Jesus' death deals with shame. We saw in that first week that when Jesus dies a shameful death on the cross and then rises again to eternal honour, he takes with him those who put their faith in him, cleansing them of their shame and giving them a place of honour with him. And we looked last week at cultures around the world, uh, mainly in Latin America, sub-Saharan Africa, Um, the South Pacific Islands, cultures that are nominally or at least usually tribal, they conceive of the world not in terms of shame and honour but fear and power. That for them the whole world is populated by powers beyond their scope. Spiritual powers that exist and have power over them and therefore in order to live a prosperous life or a good life one has to appease these powers. In cultures like this, you have a proliferation of superstitions and taboos and rituals. They all exist in order to appease the powers that are over us. The main problem for people from those cultures is the problem of fear. And we saw that Jesus, in his death on the cross, overcomes all of those powers that exist over us. He literally nails them to the cross and triumphs over them so that 
in light of what he has done for us on our behalf, we can live fearlessly, secure as his people, the people of the preeminent God. And the third major worldview you find around the globe comes from Western culture, like Australia, and we mainly conceive of ourselves in terms of not, not shame and honour or fear and power, but guilt and innocence. We have been shaped really from birth, we do this to our children from the day they're born, to think of their place in the world in terms of guilt and innocence. We use a legal framework. And we are much more individualistic. We don't really care about what we're doing for our community or our family. We want to follow our heart, follow our dreams, right? It's all about self-esteem, self-actualization, self-gratification. And we're kind of okay with that. You're free to pursue your, you know, follow your heart so long as you don't break the law. The biggest problem for people from our culture is the problem of guilt, Everyone in the room knows what it's like to feel guilty and to have that guilt weigh us down. Are there any innocent people here this morning? Just raise your hand if if you're in (laughs) Sometimes we like to make believe that little children are innocent and then you have little children (laughs) and you realise... Social media has made all of this way worse, right? Our sense of guilt. Because when I go on social media, I see this barrage of of very carefully curated images and stories that I compare myself to and find myself laden with guilt. Guilt that I've done things that I shouldn't have done. Guilt that I've failed to do things that I should have done. I made the mistake this, just this morning, just before we came together to pray, I looked on Facebook and saw a friend of mine who runs a church and they're having a live service and it just looked amazing. Like they had cool stuff going on, like a, a huge band and smoke machines and lights and lasers and, and the guy preaching was better looking than me and just like every, for every reason it made me feel guilty. Why haven't I done that? I've looked at studies that have surveyed mums on this topic and like the astronomical majority of mums, like I would say 100%, when they assess themselves as mums, predominantly feel guilt. They've raised their kids this way and they should have raised it that way. That they failed to raise their kids this way. Sins of commission, things that we have done wrong. Sins of omission, things that we should have done right, that we didn't do, right? All of this leaves us with an enormous problem to try and overcome. And most of us spend most of our lives trying to overcome it. And here's the thing, right? You won't hear me saying, and just try not to believe that anymore. Don't worry, be happy, she'll be right. Just, just, just push away that guilt. Because I believe we are guilty. And if you are guilty, you should probably feel guilty. The Bible says this, right? Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is, we are made 
in the image of God to reflect his glory. I am made to be like God. And more often than not, like all of the time, I'm not like God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. Romans 6.23 says, The wages for sin is death. So all have sinned. And what we receive in response to that is death. Condemnation. Punishment. So how... Is Good Friday good news for guilty people? How is Good Friday good news for guilty people? You know, in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant people of God, the Hebrew people, the biggest day of the year for them was called Yom Kippur, um, the Day of Atonement. The day of at one It was the biggest day of the year for them. Most important day, the holiest day. And on that day, the priest would take a goat called a scapegoat. That's where we get that term from. He takes the scapegoat and he lays his hands on the scapegoat's head and he pronounces on that goat, attributes to that goat all the sins of the people of Israel. So now that goat is laden with the guilt of the people of Israel and then it's cast out, chased out into the wilderness, never to be seen again. That was their way of dealing with guilt, of removing from the people their guilt. Now, what's the problem with that? The problem is, Like you kick the goat out into the wilderness and then five seconds later you've sinned again, right? Five seconds later you have broken one of God's laws and now you're guilty again. You know this from church. You come in, you're worshipping, hands in the air, take communion, you know, blessing one another, praying for each other, and then in the car park you're yelling at your husband. And he's looking at lustfully at a woman walking past, right? You just, you're, you're dead you're immediately. And so every year they had to repeat this ritual. Every year the Day of Atonement would come around where you could be cleansed, where you could be declared innocent for five seconds. The reason Good Friday is good news for guilty people is because at Good Friday, Jesus fulfills everything that Yom Kippur pointed towards. Good Friday is the day of atonement. Once and for all, Jesus is that scapegoat who takes upon himself the sins of all who would trust in him. This is how Peter, a Hebrew himself, described it. He saw the obvious that Jesus was the one who came to fulfill all that foreshadowed it. And in in his letter to the church, he says, For Christ also suffered for sins 
once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. That's atonement. The righteous one dies in the place of the unrighteous. The innocent dies in the place of the guilty once for all to bring you to God, to make atonement so that you can be one with God. On Good Friday, God provides a way once for all to escape our inescapable problem. Now you might say, how are we any different from the people of Israel? Jesus died for us. That was 2,000 years ago. I've been sinning a storm since I was born. And maybe, maybe if our prayers are answered, maybe you're here this morning and for the first time ever, you recognize that Jesus has made a way for you to know and love and be in relationship with God. You put your trust in him. You are saved. You come back here on Sunday and get baptized, right? And, and, and you are now a believer. You have been forgiven. But everyone in this room continues to sin. We continue to do stuff that makes us guilty. Every time we sin, that white robe that you were given when you were saved gets stained. These black stains over you. So what's the difference? The difference between a scapegoat or the difference between Yom Kippur and Good Friday is the same difference between a scapegoat and the Son of God. Jesus' sacrifice was so cosmic, so cataclysmic. You read in the narrative, you see what happens when he dies? Darkness descends on the land. There's an earthquake. Tombs are broken open and people come back to life. Like, it's so cataclysmic. It's so cosmic in its scope. It shakes the universe. That's the difference between Yom Kippur and Good Friday, between a scapegoat and the Son of God who dies willingly for us. It's once for all. And so you can say as a believer, Jesus died for all of my sins, past, present, and future. Do we still sin? Yes, we do. We still fall short of the glory of God all the time. But here's here's, here's the beauty of the cross. Here's the power of the atonement, right? You have been brought into right relationship with God. And then from that moment on, when you sin against him, he still hates your sin. He hates it. He can't abide it. He's perfectly pure. And so he can't even be near it. 
And yet, when, you're, when you sin, he's not repelled by you, but drawn to you. I feel like a whole lot of us this morning, even the mature Christians, need to hear that. When you sin, God is not repelled by you. Like, you, you're like there's a smell that he can't stand. But he's drawn to you. It's like this, right? It's like if you, if you are unwell, if you're sick, or if you say you've uh, broken your wrist, you hate the fact that you've broken your wrist. You wish it wasn't there. It causes you great distress. And yet, because it's a member of your body, you're drawn to it, to heal it, to be compassionate with it, merciful, kind. You take care of it. You restore it. We are members of Christ's body. And when we sin, when we're weak, when we're broken, he is drawn to us to forgive, to cleanse, to heal. That's the difference. And that's why Good Friday is good news for guilty people like us. God provides a way to escape the inescapable guilt that we all feel and have earned. He makes a way by providing himself. The Lord Jesus dies an innocent man in the place of guilty mankind. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it, right? The Apostle Paul, the Persecutor of the church, murderer of Christians, hates Jesus, hates his people. And God saves him by grace. And here's how he describes what happens. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So God makes Jesus, who knew no sin, he was innocent, pure, blameless, he makes him to be sin, the embodiment of sin. He takes upon himself the world's sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Righteousness is, just means right. Ness, right standing with God, right relationship with God, being able to stand in God's presence without being consumed by fire and condemned forever, right? Being able to stand in God's presence and be loved by him as a son or a daughter. That's having righteousness. The problem is no one can stand in God's presence and have right relationship with him unless they're completely innocent, Remember, God can't abide sin. He can't be near it. He's too perfect. He's too pure. It's an offense against him, an offense against the highest honor in the universe. So he can't abide unrighteousness. He can't be around anyone who's not perfect. So God has what we need and can't earn. Righteousness. He's the only one who has it. God has what we need 
and can't earn. And we have what God hates and can't abide, which is sin. Dang it. That's some pretty bad news. God has what we need and can't earn. Righteousness, purity, innocence. And we have what he hates and can't abide, can't be around, can't be near. Sin, guilt, brokenness, sickness. On Good Friday... we get to witness the great exchange. The great exchange. Let me read again for you 1 Peter 3, 18. See the exchange that's happening here. Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. And then Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the great exchange. That's why we call it Good Friday. In spite of the fact that the the greatest travesty in the history of the universe is taking place. You see this great exchange happening right in the narrative of Good Friday. This exchange is taking place even as Jesus goes to the cross. So you heard it in the readings. We'll look at it real brief. A couple of instances where this happens. First of all, you've got Jesus before Pilate, Jesus before Herod. Nothing they can pin on him. This guy's innocent. Like, as far as I can see, all he has done through all of his life is love people, heal people, forgive people, include people who were ostracized. It was like God was living among us because he was. They find no grounds to charge him with anything, let alone the most excruciating death possible, death on a cross the most shameful death possible, being stripped naked and then hung up hours and hours gasping for breath. And so Pilate, the Roman, says, I'm not going to kill him. He's done nothing wrong. And yet the people, the people whose hearts are shaped in the very same way as ours, those people say, crucify him. And then Pilate, it's almost funny what he does. It's, it's ironic. It's, it's comedic. He says, all right, here, we'll make a deal. Like, they're never going to do this. I, I, I'll kill Jesus if you take Barabbas, the rebel, the murderer, the lawbreaker. And they take it. They take that deal. And so you have, in the very pages of the narrative that the historian Luke records for us, you have 
this great exchange. The innocent takes the place of the guilty. And it's a travesty. It's unjust. And so it is when any one of us receives God's gracious forgiveness through Jesus. It's a travesty. It's a beautiful travesty. The innocent is condemned and the guilty is set free. So you have it with Barabbas and then you have it a little bit later on as Jesus hangs on a cross. As he undergoes the most excruciating punishment possible on baseless grounds. As he hangs on the cross, he hangs with two criminals either side of him. And one of them hurls insults at Jesus. If he could, he'd be shaking his fist. If it wasn't nailed to a plank of wood, he'd shake his fist and say, Jesus, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and save us too. Why don't you get out of this? And you know what? He could. He could have. The Gospels tell us that at that moment, Jesus could have called down 12 legions of angels and just destroyed Jerusalem and all of his enemies. And yet he doesn't. He willingly goes through it all for our sake. The other criminal rebukes. He says, don't you even fear God since you are undergoing the same punishment? And then he owns. He does what all of us need to do. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do this a little bit later on as we come before God in confession. He owns it. He says, we are punished justly. How many of us try and wriggle out of our guilt, the guilt that we know we have, by minimizing it? We say things like, well, I've never murdered anyone. Or, or I'm not Hitler. Right? We put, you put yourself on a scale with Hitler and you're doing pretty well. He owns it. We are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Guilt, innocence, right there in front of us. Both nailed to a cross. And then he does what I'm praying all of us will do at some point. He expresses faith in Jesus' capacity to save him. Not from his present trial and suffering, but forever. This is what he says. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. And what's Jesus' response? I'll tell you what it should have been. It should have been, get stuffed. That's what he, if he was an Aussie, he would have said, get stuffed. I'm the only innocent one here. That's what he should have said. 
You want to come into my kingdom? The only people who can come into the kingdom of God are the pure, the innocent, the blameless. You just said yourself, I'm getting what I deserve. That's what he should have said. For justice to be done. What does he say? Truly I tell you. Whenever Jesus says truly I tell you, or I tell you the truth, you can bet that whatever he's about to say is guaranteed. He's the son of God. He's the creator and sustainer of all things. He has the name that's above every name. So whenever he says, I tell you the truth, truly I tell you, you better believe what comes next. He says, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. How is that possible for a criminal executed and for it to be absolutely deserved in every way? For a criminal, he didn't get baptised. He didn't show up to church. He didn't raise his hands in worship. His hands were stretched out in crucifixion. And yet Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. That's the great exchange. That's why Good Friday is good news for guilty people like me and like you. I just want to finish by reading this beautiful description of Jesus who is our scapegoat sacrifice. This description of Jesus that was written 700 years before he was ever born. It was written by the prophet Isaiah and it perfectly describes all that Jesus has done for us. I'll read it and pray for us. He says, Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet, he himself bore our sicknesses and carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities, Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him 
for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is a good Friday. It's the best Friday. In spite of the travesty, the injustice, just the downright wrongness of Jesus, the innocent man, being executed in the place of the guilty, in spite of the sadness and the solemnity of this day, we recognize it as good. It was you seeing us in our guilt condemned to death and stepping in to save us. I pray this morning that every soul in this room would receive your mercy and grace today. That we would be able to own the fact that we deserve our punishment that the guilt that we shoulder is deserved. And then, Lord, in triumph and celebration, may we exchange that guilt for the innocence of your only Son who died in our place and for our sin, conquering your enemies of Satan, sin and death. And we look forward to that day which is coming, Easter Sunday, where you triumphed once and for all. Lord, now as we stand to sing your praises, as words are given to us that we wouldn't otherwise be able to express, may we truly give thanks for all that you've done for us and for all that you're going to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.